Hello everyone, uh, this is the Travel Local Podcast and I'm your host Dblex Lesalon. Uh, in this episode, I'm excited to have this chat with Jim Karani. Jim is an environmental lawyer who works with the law enforcement to ensure wildlife poachers and traffickers are brought to justice. He's also a consulting partner at Lawyers for Animal Protecting in Africa, which is also a network of lawyers working uh, to elevate legal protections for Africa's iconic wildlife and domestic species. I hope you enjoy this episode. Karibuni, karibuni sana. Jim, how are you? How are you doing, Lesson? I'm good. Can you hear me well? Yeah, I'm doing good. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Thank you for making time to join us, my brother. Sure. I hope you can hear me well. Yeah, I can hear you well, but there's a bit of a hitch. Um, can you hear me well from your end? Well, well, you know, you, you sound a bit far, but still I can hear you well. Okay, let me get closer to the mic a bit. Okay, yeah. um, so I was, uh, as I was saying, thank you so much for making time. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show, and I can't wait for you to share with our guests what you've been up to and what you do in the travel industry as a lawyer. Which, have you been to the field out there? Uh, which is the last place you visited that made you happy, Jim? Um, this like talk talk, I think, uh, right off the slopes of uh, this amazing privilege to go into the Amboseli National Park, where I think it remains the only place in the world you can see wild elephants that close. The elephants are so calm, they're so peaceful, there's very little poaching that happens in Amboseli National Park, so it's this magical, beautiful place which has this backdrop of Mount Kilimanjaro um, which, as you may know, uh, you know, uh, belongs to Tanzania, but the view belongs to us. It's so beautiful uh, when seen from the Amboseli National Park. If I could do uh, anything for the rest of my life is work there. If only I got a chance, I <laughs> uh, want to go back there again. And I'm sure it's not your first. Uh, you've been there before. Have you? Did you? Did you manage to meet uh, Tim? the elephant that passed, uh, I think, a few years back? Definitely, yeah, Tim, Tim died a couple of, uh, uh, I think it was last year, last year before that. Uh, and uh, currently, there are other big tasks still remaining in the Amboseli ecosystem. There's still Tolstoy. Uh, it's this huge bull um, who we hope will also get to live as long as Tim did and hopefully die from natural causes as Tim did. Wow, I was having a conversation with Selenge from Elephant Voices, and she 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 painted a picture in my mind about the elephants of Amboseli, and they seem to be very friendly. Did you pick this up on your recent visit? Yeah, I mean it's the same thing I was telling you before. I mean Amboseli remains the only ecosystem you can see wild elephants close enough. I mean they are not violent; they will not accost you. They are so. They're so easy to interact with. They walk up to your car. You know, I have a, I have a number of photos where I've taken of elephants literally just 
coming straight to our car wild elephants with calves you know i've seen uh there many times i've been driving in amboseli and i bump into a group of young adolescents and they're so curious about the car so you know you're a little bit scared and i'm forced <laughs> to somehow back up <laughs> yeah but it's usually so much fun to to see them in the wild and of course um you know we have lake amboseli uh, smack in the middle of yamboseli national park which is home to amazing bird life so it's a little bit of uh it's a it's a little bit of having lake naivasha or lake nakuru uh when you're with a backdrop of elephants it's just beautiful and what is that moment like jim can you uh, just tell us what goes on through your mind when you are on the driver's seat and an elephant or rather a group of elephants uh, just passes by your car well, how how does that feel uh, you know it, it's it, it's a feeling that is hard to express and i i get it every time i i go into a national park and hopefully sometimes when there's a view and you can see a backdrop of animals you can easily see this if you're going through a uh, sekenani gate into the masai mara you can just make a corner or make a turn and just bump into a magnitude of animals the same expression i have is i get it from uh, when i was a child the first time i watched the jurassic park and you know when they were showing the first guests when they were they were coming into the park and they made a turn and they saw this magical place with this beasts they've never seen before <laughs> it's it's you know the way your mouth just drops yeah. and you just don't know where you are anymore and the magnitude of the animal that is before you and then it hits you you have this 100 kilometers or 50 kilometers from your home and it's so peaceful it's nature it's for lack of a better word it leaves you overwhelmed and you know you know the minute you have an elephant standing in front of you and you know you're at its complete mercy and it doesn't want to harm you it's you know it's that interaction with wild animals that i think you immediately teleport to the past where i think our ancestors they were so having the same interactions with animals so it's pretty much like having a snapshot to our history um you know that connection in our heritage wow and what really sparked your interest you know to take up travel as a hobby Well, travel has ended up not even being a hobby it has ended up just being a necessary a necessity of work um because my my work has uh, I'm privileged enough to travel around the continent and sometimes around the world um in conferences seminars teaching uh, positions or um, you know or lectures uh, visiting lectures and the one thing i really love about travel is every single country i go to i my mind expands it's a sieve my curiosity takes in a whole lot of things i become a sponge i i realized when i go to a country i interact with new food with a new way of life with you know i you know for example when you fly to a new country you need to learn how they get money you need to learn how they drive you need to learn how to move from point a to point b uh, you need to figure out what to say what to wear you know and at the same time you know travel allows you to connect with those places which you only see on tv and those places which unless you see for yourself you know you will never believe exist so travel i think for me has expanded my curiosity and i want to see everything i want to be in a position where i can see everything
and I just hope God privileges me enough to be in such a position. All right. And I'm, I'm glad you've mentioned about your work, you know, basically mostly, you know, involving a lot of travel around, around the world. And as a consulting partner uh, uh, for lawyers, uh, animal protection in Africa, you know, and uh, an environmental lawyer as well, uh, could you please shed some light on what your job entails? So um, it's going to sound a little bit boring, but I, I hope it sounds exciting for those who Take are interested. But, uh, <laughs> but ideally, I am involved in trying to elevate and enhance the status and protection of animals um, in Africa. Something all of us have uh, come to agree is that animals have been neglected a lot by the law. And as a result, society has not given them the protection they deserve. So um, I am privileged to be part of a group of lawyers who have dedicated their work to, you know, assisting governments to change policy, uh, train law enforcement, uh, helping NGOs develop capacity, uh, create advocacy programs that change laws for animals. For example, um, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged to be part of, you know, Kenya's conservation uh, movement, which in the last 10 years has changed the law you know, to protect wildlife in Kenya. Currently, we have the strongest uh, wildlife law in Africa and I think in the world. Uh, previously, if you will kill an elephant, you will only pay 40,000 shillings, which is the equivalent of, I think, 400 US dollars. So now if you kill an elephant, you can pretty much pay up to 10 million shillings uh, or get up to life imprisonment. So we have truly changed. I want to feel we have been a part of a large wave of changing how we protect and see animals in our society. So my job, um, you know, entails going to talk to people who don't believe animals should be protected. It's a, it's a very thankless job because animals don't know you're doing it for them. And at the same time, you feel like you're not doing enough. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel we need to, to, to do laws that target, not only target the big animals, the elephants, the rhinos and the lions, you know, those ones are the nice looking animals or the cute ones that people want to protect. I mean, sure. our law should work well enough to protect some of our indig- indigenous lizards, you know, the tiniest of animals, the ones that are being rendered extinct, the ones that are disappearing, you know, and the ones that nobody seems to have a campaign about. For example, you will never hear an NGO called Save the Chameleons, but you will hear Save the Lions, you know, Save the Elephants, you know, but there are very few people who are targeting the small animals, the actual animals that actually matter. So um, we are part of a movement that is trying to change this and hopefully we will inspire and get as many people involved in this, people who can duplicate and replicate our work and even enhance it, you know, to change how animals are protected in Africa. Well, this is so good. I like uh, that you've mentioned about, you know, cutting across and also targeting and bringing on board, you know, the small animals, because we we are seeing just people talking about big animals, you know. And on the same trail of thought, um, you've talked about spreading education and awareness and just going to the ground and and explaining, you know, to people these laws. Uh, What has been the response uh, on the ground? Well, it has been a, a mixed one. Um, people do not like government and, uh, and people are very suspicious of government, you know, um, you know, communities, um, you know, are, are seeing a lot of law enforcement, which has increased people who 
for example, used to, to go into a forest and take an antelope and, you know, for subsistence poaching, now are being jailed for five years. So there is a lot of uh, education that needs to happen. So it's a mixed, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a mixed reaction. There are people who welcome the new laws because finally we have lost a much each other. But at the same time, there are people who are concerned that other countries are not following, you know, uh, our, you know, our, our step. For example, we have a strong law that is protecting elephants in Savo. But once the same elephants cross into Tanzania to go into Mkomazi, they go into a country which has a different set of laws. Sure. So we have elephants who don't, who don't use passports, who don't know laws exist and boundaries exist, being subject by two different uh, attitudes and law enforcement uh, interventions. It's, it's, a, it's scary that we have to make all these laws be the same. For example, if if you put if you if you were found with one kg of cocaine in Tanzania, you'll be jailed the same amount of time as you will be jailed in Kenya. If you committed murder in in Kenya, you you will be still be jailed the same penalty as if you were in Tanzania. But wildlife crime, it's very different. Uganda has its own thing. Kenya has its own thing. Somalia doesn't have anything. Ethiopia has its own thing. So um, there's a lot of catching up that needs to be done. Um, and I feel we need, we still need to do a lot more before we can actually measure um, what has been the true impact of of laws, you know, on on society. Yeah, and uh, poaching poaching is big. It's driving extinction at a massive massive rate in Africa, uh, in uh, you know, uh, to some species. How how long does it take? Uh, please help us understand how long does it take before. Uh, the poachers get convicted. Convicted. Uh, sorry. How 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 is the process like? Well, uh, I will I will try and you know try and give a typical example that happens in Kenya. Yeah. Uh, for, for the reasons why most people poach, uh, simple economic reasons. Uh, some of this wildlife, all of a sudden, has become very very lucrative in the world in you know the illegal black market. And something that people truly do not understand, a simple animal like it comes from that area and it's pretty much a homeland species, very, very, very indigenous to that place. You can only find it in our local area. Now that snake uh, fetches a Antibodies and uh, you know vaccines and all that. So, the black market has created this demand for these animals. And the last time a study was done, only five of those snakes were found, and three of them were in museums. So this shows you just just as it's just one species that we looked at, there could be so many other species that have been wiped out, and no one knows that have been wiped out. So poaching has this problem. Now, the other thing is, how then do these animals then move from Chuka, my home ground, and go all the way to Asia? So it's a, it's a very interesting uh, world that, I, that, you know, I've had, you know, the privilege of being experienced in. And this is where we see animals moving across borders. You know, we see 
officers being corrupted. We see traffickers being so ingenious and clever. We've seen them, you know, put, you know, put uh, tiny turtles in in soup boxes and export them as soup. I have seen ivory being, you know, exported in uh, inside coffins. I have seen ivory being exported inside bags of coffee and tea, you know, export tea and coffee from Kenya. So, you know, the the poachers have become very, they've become very, very ingenious too. And then at the same time, very few people have actually been looking at wildlife crime as a serious issue. So most, so it means if you are in a border in Somalia and you impound one ton of ivory, you don't even know what to do with it. So you just let it go. Mm, so there is this chain of poaching and wildlife trafficking, you know, that happens before it gets to the end consumer. And then once it gets to the end consumer, we have to ask ourselves, how then does the money come back? So a lot of this money is, you know, laundered back into the system. So there's a, there's a massive chain of criminality involved with poaching it just doesn't end at the animal dying uh interesting and uh what i'm picking up is there is a big and very very many loopholes you know and uh the sophistication of these poachers and their interconnectedness around african countries is really massive and i like what you pointed out uh before you know talking about poaching on uh, different countries having different laws when it comes to wildlife you know uh, I think this this could be the driving factor, and I want us to talk a, b- a bit about intra Africa. Hello, Jim. You hey, you can hear me. Yes, I can hear you. Sorry about that. I'm I'm not sure what has happened. The connection just uh, disconnected no, it's itself. Okay. No, yeah, no so, problem. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Can you hear me well? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, fantastic. As I was saying, um, you know, uh. I, what I'm picking up from what you're telling us is, uh, you know, there's a lot of loopholes, you know, uh, between, you know, this interconnectedness the poachers have across Africa. And what you mentioned about, you know, different countries having different laws when it comes to wildlife. And I want us to touch a bit about Af- intra-African travel, maybe as the solution to this, you know, if we come together as African countries and have, uh, you know, uh, laws you know the same laws on wildlife the same laws on wildlife crime you know uh, could this be the solution really oh yeah there is a actually a, re- a recommendation for a global um you know uh protocol and law on on wildlife crime so this will, will, will mirror what has been done on uh, human trafficking uh, arms and drugs because we've realized wildlife crime is just as lucrative and and just as you know as serious as drugs arms trafficking and human trafficking so it's serious yeah. it's very very serious so I, it's very encouraging to see that and also it has been also been very encouraging to see other countries copy each other like tanzania now is considering elevating their laws uganda is doing the same thing to rwanda has been doing the same thing uh, Tanzania has taken uh, a while just to change their laws, and I think just very until recently, they have started to catch up with everybody else. But everybody else beyond that, you know, Mozambique, um, Zambia, you know, Malawi, uh, Burundi, Rwanda, Congo, no one even wants to talk about Congo, where 
all the forest elephants are, you know. But we're looking forward to, you know, these laws, you know, being general and being also at the same time applying generally to every country and every jurisdiction. Yeah, I really hope we can build on that because, as you've said, down there, you know, in the south and those countries like Congo, you know, Zambia, Botswana, that's where, you know, big conservation happens. And we have, if we come together and, uh, you know, join forces, I think intra-African travel could be even the solution to opening up, uh, you know, African tourism for Africans instead of relying to relying on, sorry, to um, international tourists. What's your take on that, sir? Oh, my... My take on intra-African travel. Intra-African travel, yeah. Intra-African travel is is this. Yeah. It is easier for me to fly to New York than it is for me to fly to, uh, let's say, a city in, say, Maputo. It's what? easier. It is It is 10 times easier for me to do that. The, um, currently, if you see the level of passport control in Africa, it's insane. Um, up until recently... Uh, we could only just use, we now just started using our INDs to cross into Tanzania, right? Yeah, it, it is sure. it is unfortunate that Tanzania, which we share tribes, and, and we agree that these borders are, are things that colonialists just drew, yeah? <clears throat> they just drew and no one, they just drew and they have no, they have no connection to how people are connected, yeah? Mm-hmm. For example, the, the Maasai do not recognize that border. They do not. They cross with cows, whatever they want. So sure. we need to be true to ourselves. I don't believe people who are in one continent should be having borders. It makes no sense. It absolutely makes no sense. And then it is not easy sometimes to connect between some countries. For example, do you know there's no connection between, uh, flight connection between, say, Tanzania and uh, Mozambique? I don't think there is. And then... Uh, if you wanted to to go to uh, to to uh, I can't tell you just how insane some of these flights are. If there's one I know, uh, and I have to admit also, it, it was a reasonably priced flight where <laughs> I was flying to Cape Town, but I was using um, um, I was using Ethiopian Airlines, and I flew up to Addis, and then I flew down to Cape Town. I passed. I passed my home twice. <laughs> Do you understand? Yeah, <laughs> you know, wow. and then and then let's let's also agree. Let's agree two things here. In yeah. East Africa, we cannot have every country trying to have its own airline. Mm-hmm. My friend, this is a joke. We have mm-hmm. Air Tanzania, we have Air Uganda, we have Kenya Airways, we have Ethiopian Airlines, all of them competing over international hubs and airports. We look confused. And then all of us are creating an unhealthy competition because all of these are state-run they're not even uh, profit-making organizations kq is not air tanzania is not nor is it the same for air uganda right but can you imagine if there was a regional airline just one low-cost cheap airline they merge all of these good assets that they have and then we have one good cheap airline just one to facilitate travel like if you're in Arusha, you know I can be in Nairobi tomorrow if I wanted to. You know, it, I think it will be it will be better. And then, in you know, intra-African travel will change the day countries truly start seeing themselves as unique gems, and they diversify their tourism products. Why would I leave Kenya and go to Tanzania on safari? 
when I have this, it's the same product. It is literally sure. the same thing. You arrive at airports, people will dance for you. You'll go to the hotel. There'll be someone there to serve you with juice. You'll get into your hotel. There'll be a game drive. You'll come back to your hotel. There'll be Maasai's who will be singing for you. And that'll be it. It's literally, if you're doing a safari experience, there's a very high chance that you will somehow go through the same rigmarole in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania. We truly need to diversify our products. We have to, because you will notice like, um, let's say Kenya for uh, a stretch of one kilometer on the Masai Mara, it has more camps and hotels than Tanzania has. You get what I mean? Because yeah. of the of of the cost and the ease of doing business. You know, uh, foreign investors will not come to invest in countries who are not open and true. You get what I mean? It will be difficult. So as Africa is thinking about, um, you know, infra travel, we need to truly build and diversify our product. And we can't do that without um, at the same time creating a product which locals can consume and the international market can consume. Wow, talking talking of diversifying products, you know, what other products and services can Kenya market to, you know, new and upcoming uh, tourist markets apart from the big five which we have oversold since independence and the Kenyan coast, you know? Mm, that's a that's a that's a good question, and uh, um, I think I think we have seen this this push by government to do these conferences and meetings. Um, you know, which, you know, they drive tourism a little bit, but they are not sustainable. But I think it's time we truly shown and showcased Kenya for what it truly is. We don't have to go to Dubai for you to have the desert experience. You just need to have a very good car and just four hours, four hours to five hours of your time to drive up towards Marsabit and get into the Chalbi Desert. Um, Perfect. You, you only need to go to, to, on your way, there's so much for you to see. Um, and then in Kenya, we have uh, of amazing ease and access to two of the tallest peaks in, you know, in Africa. I was privileged to climb Mount Kenya and I truly would love to do Kilimanjaro. And if you've noticed something, hiking and mountaineering has truly picked up domestically. And if people, kn if people knew how serious, you know, the international market takes in hiking as a tourism product, you need to see Nepal. You need to see how Peru markets itself. You truly need to see how beautiful Kenya is, especially the upper day on the Kenya circuits. Um, you know, you just they just truly need to be packaged and, and marketed as something else. And then, of course, you know, Mombasa has its own appeal, but anybody with, with a stretch of sand and an island can easily do that. So I agree. Um, we truly need to diversify. But there's so much Kenya has which no one has touched. And camping, really. Camping has, real, has also picked up, you know, along Sagana, along other, you know, other campsites which are coming up in uh, remote areas which uh, were undiscovered before, before COVID. Mm, and then, and also adventure spots, you know, white water rafting. You know, I've noticed our generation is braver, you know, there are, they are more into taking risks and they're more into chasing adrenaline. So it's amazing to see, you know, the level of adventure sports that have picked up in the country. Rock climbing is now a thing. You can see how much people are going to Hell's Gate, Lukanya, and discovering new peaks and mountains and jagged edges in Trukana and Samburu. You know, it's, 
it's encouraging, quite amazing to see these things which people thought belong to Wazungus and the whites and the Europeans are actually being uh, done down to a habit by Kenyans. And are, are you optimistic that there will be an increase in international travel also as we look to, you know, vaccines being uh, started ro- rolled out and uh, borders, uh, you know, looking to reopen again? Oh yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice to see, you know, uh, you know, the, the international travel open. And I have to say, you know, we we truly need to 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 look at how much Corona has truly impacted. Um, our tourism industry, and we never truly realized how fragile our number three, you know, foreign exchange Anna was, and that how fragile everything was, and it was a it was a shock to our to our tourist partners who are basically if you're in twin travel hotels, safaris, and conservancies, you're in the big game of tourism, right? So and and they mostly cater to the international market, and what Corona did, it forced them to look inwardly and start thinking about their home residence. All of a sudden we noticed places which, you know, were so inaccessible and unreachable to lo- to locals were now affordable and reasonably priced. And, you know, you'll be shocked to know very few Kenyans actually go to national parks or engage with, with actual tourist sites like proper tourists. So in and it was quite it was quite interesting for you to notice that Corona, which cut down travel, essentially killed tourism because it killed the one thing the tourism needs. But at the same time, I would love for you to know that it was an amazing time for the animals. I, I went to the Masai Mara during Corona period and it was fascinating to not have the huge crowd of foreigners <laughs> and you know, crowding everywhere. <laughs> I had yeah. we had the left for a day, there were just two we had just two land cruisers to ourselves and the entire Masimara to ourselves for a second there. And animals, you know, bounced back. For example, you'll love to know that there was no poaching of rhinos in the year 2020. Um, sure. you know, Kenya Wildlife Service just announced that. So coincidence, I think not. Um, I think I think travel helps traffickers and tourists alike to move. So um, you know, there were there were positives and negatives to it. But still, we we do pray and we are hopeful that once the international market comes back, a huge segment of the for the foreign revenue earnings will come back to some of these businesses, most which have died, some which are literally hanging on, others which are, you know, uh, only surviving and waiting for, you know, tourists to come back. Wow, I totally agree with you on that. And uh, Jim, do you believe we really care? And as 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 as, as a people, I want to actively address the the threats facing our wildlife because, as you mentioned, uh, uh, nature has uh, you know had rebounded since people are on lockdown. And uh, are, are we are we going to continue on this trajectory uh, post COVID, or are we going to continue with our old habits? Uh, you know, it's crazy. That's that's a very that's that's a very unfair question, sir. <laughs> because I, if you, I know you've traveled and you go everywhere and you notice Europeans do not have wildlife. Americans yeah. killed all their wildlife, and then <laughs> you come back home and you go, how is it then? We have all these animals. How is it that there are animals which can trace their 
you know, they can trace they can trace the succession way back then to prehistoric times. We have prehistoric animals with us. I mean, it shows that Africans have taken care of these animals. You will notice culturally, um, we have this huge attachment to our animals. Um, I mean, I can tell you just how many people are named after lions and and giraffes and <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times we have put in animals as euphemisms to to strength and to weakness in our stories. I can't tell you just how many how many times I've sat with my grandma and she has used stories like from the animal farm to truly quickly explain to me, you know, concepts. Our attachment to animals is very, very deep. Um you will notice like um uh, you know, tribes and communities in Northeastern, they do not touch the giraffe. They cannot eat the giraffe. As a result, the giraffe roams the way it wants in Wajir. I mean, it, it's, you know, like it gets this high level of respect. The Maasai is of a same high level of respect to elephants. And you've seen just how compatible conservation is with their way of life. I mean, Africans have this key sense and connection to animals and animals occupy the mistake in, in our culture. So, I mean, look at how many brands we are currently using that are named after animals. The house I'm in probably was built with rhino cement. <laughs> you know, you know, we 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 have cast we have cast you know our favorite beer is Tasca. You know, <laughs> because, yeah. You know, when you when you truly look around, you go like, hiya, everything has been truly been named. There's a strong connection to animals because we truly see it, and um, all Africans truly need to do is to truly feel the need to protect what they have. I mean, like every other resource, I mean, look at how much we're protecting our oil. I mean, if you go and ask people of Ndakainia how much they protect the water, they will tell you. So we know how to protect mm -hmm. resources. It's all about communicating um, this to, you know, all, all Africans of them to know, and not all of them have to agree, but a, 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 a huge number of them have to, you know, understand that animals have a right to be here and they demand space and attention. For example, you cannot go and start farming right next to an elephant corridor and then not expect mm -hmm. your your crops to be raided by, by elephants, right? And at the same yeah. time, the government cannot expect that people who have lived with elephants all along uh, can see the government benefiting from tourism and they, they are not getting a share of the cost. I mean, if you were to replace tourism and you put oil, you'll be shocked just how that argument will hold that if we live within and with wildlife and we, we suffer the dangers of wildlife conservation, say elephants kill a relative, elephants destroy your crops, lions eat your livestock, you know, stuff like that, yeah? And you have a case, you should be speedily compensated. And then secondly, these dangers you're facing, who is who is benefiting from it? Because the tourist truly is benefiting. That's why they pay tourist fees. So some of yeah. these fees should go back to communities. Once communities see that they are benefiting from financially and also they have this connection to their wildlife, I mean, it will be the, the combination everybody will need for our animals to continue existing. But our animals are going nowhere. Africans will keep them. I'm 100% sure. I'm very hopeful about that. <laughs> I like that. 
I like that a lot. And uh, I, I, I also agree that uh, Africans are natural con conservationists, you know. But on the flip side, Africa's, uh, you know, human population is expected to double by 2050. And uh, probably we will not have space, you know, to put these animals, uh, you know, uh, you, these rhinos that we, are, that we are fighting to protect right now, the elephants, you know, we will, we will not have that space to reintroduce them back to the wild. Is population control are, uh, a solution or are there other things that we can do to probably make, you know, space and, uh, you know, be able to coexist with these animals together, Jim? Well, that's a very good question, um, but I think the full responsibility falls on on us because when we think of, when we talk about population control, we get to a very sensitive area, a very sensitive area where um, I think my opinions are are serious into this. We need population control on both sides, and population control will be one um, when it comes to animals um, because of conservation success and mostly because of just how much law enforcement is involved in this. Elephants, for example, are increasing in number. So it's no longer a question of uh, we need more space as human beings. Animals need more space. So we truly need to have this discussion, the true discussion on land use. It's a discussion which every single politician scuts around, but no one truly talks about it. We need to truly discuss how do we use our animals and is it compatible uh, and whatever use we create around our animals is it compatible to to conservation for example we have agreed that you cannot go and start a bar right next to a nursery school everybody knows that for a fact because we say that land use is incompatible to this other land use it's a fact in fact it is so well policed that i have never seen a bar right next to a primary school. But bring the case now to animals. You will find where animals are crossing, that is where you will find a huge infrastructure development, like a road, uh, maybe a six-lane road or a four-lane road or a railway cutting through, yeah? And then with very few amenities for underpasses, automatically creating human wildlife conflict. Then secondly, um, you will find that in most of these places, because of changing climate change, people are changing their crops. Possibly a place where you grow wheat and it was not attractive to elephants. Now people are growing, say, vegetables um, on agriculture, on irrigation, uh, irrigation agriculture, completely changing yeah. the land use of an area. For example, I can use Loitoktok. That area 15 years ago did not have farms on for vegetables or anything it was just masses and cattle and very few chambers here and there but if you go right now it's a massive venture agricultural venture it's a massive development of vegetables and i think emali uh, which is now pretty much ground zero for the collection of vegetables in kenya attributes a lot of its supply from this area so the change in land use that is there has just completely changed the dynamics of conflict because now elephants, which previously were not interested in whatever was there, are now fully plugged in. So fences do not work. They do work in some areas, but they don't work as a solution 100%. I feel the community needs to be engaged where if an elephant strays and it comes to your farm, 
you know, there's enough capacity within the community to either alert Kenya Wildlife Service or to handle that issue, you know? Or, you know, as opposed yeah. to the traditional way where Kenyans, we have seen most of them kill those animals, you know, consume the meat. We've seen this and we truly have to talk about it. Or we have seen Kenyans do um, put very egregious and very dangerous things right next to farms to protect their crops. Uh, for example, we've seen people put uh, beams with nails. You know, this if an elephant steps on this, you know, we've noticed just purely from behavioral science that they become more violent, which increases their propensity to, to commit conflict. So there, there's, there, there, are, there truly needs to be a discussion to how do we train communities to deal with the largest of animals and to deal with the smallest of animals. How are Kenyans dealing with something like snake bites? For example, up until recently, most Kenyans did not know you couldn't readily access uh, antivenom in hospitals. You could get bit by a snake and that could easily have been the end of you. So, you know, we truly need to have a true discussion as to how do we truly, truly, truly empower communities to be able to deal with the risk of animals that they live with. These animals do not know what they are doing. You cannot tell me that steam was conspiring how to steal vegetables from people every morning. He was not doing that. It was the it was this impulse to go and access food. Yeah, these animals need space to move freely. They need space to. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, breed, and uh, I, I like what you've mentioned about, you know, uh, the locals really, and they need, they we really need to have this conversation uh, uh, on the ground, and uh, you know, we can't expect them to just kill animals, consume the meat, and they also want to be compensated or uh, the number of livestock uh, that they have lost. It 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 can't work that way, and uh, we really need to have this discussion, right? Yeah, that's true. And uh, and the the one thing I feel uh, needs to happen is we need to ask ourselves when was the last time the Kenyan government created a new national park? When was the last time the Kenyan government intentionally added an inch of one national park to increase the size? So what we are saying is since independence, the animals we've had have remained in the same space they've been in. We truly need to expand. We need to think more. We need to empower conservancies and locals where, by the way, you'll be shocked to know that 20% of our wildlife can only be found in national parks. 80% is outside national parks, in communities, in conservancies. Sure. So we need to empower communities to a position where they feel they own and they benefit from wildlife. Otherwise, they will derive the only benefit from wildlife they can see, which is, you know, eating them or selling them. Mm. They will find a way. The they only will thing, find a way. Yeah, the only, sure, the only thing that is happening is space being, you know, taken, you, you know, uh, the railway passing through Nairobi National Park. You'll hear the government wants to construct a lodge, uh, you know, inside and, uh, you know, in the middle of the park. Uh, what is happening in Amboseli about, uh, you know, the avocados? I don't know which farm is this, which is uh, planting avocados for export, taking massive, massive, big chunks of land, you know, and it's, 
it's really crazy, you know. We have to create that balance where we, we, you know, we learn to coexist and give wildlife space to thrive. You know, we need, that's a very good idea. You see the way, the way we compensate people to create a road reserve is the same way we should be compensating people. The same logic to create national parks. It's truly the same logic. Unless if we don't do that, if we don't truly protect the last remaining habitats of wildlife, we'll be in a lot of trouble. For example, um, there have been a couple of losses that have happened. Uh, for example, some of the national parks which we talk about only exist in paper, like the Malkamari National Park, which is in Mandera, exists on paper. Um, if you look at, um, for example, um, uh, in the Chulu, uh, there was a court order that was given, I think last year or last year before, where the national park lost a huge chunk of land to the local community over a case. I mean, and then you look at the massive developments that are happening. You look at the railway that went through the national park, the, the, the southern bypass, um, and then you look at the four-kilometer road now being constructed through, you know, on, on the edge of the park, through all Serenity to the ICD, mm. and then we ask, we keep on be, we keep on being told that you will add more space to the national park. Where is this space? You know, it's not for it's not forthcoming. And on the positive side, we have seen, uh, you know, organizations, private organizations, leading on the forefront, you know, to to spearhead conservation in Kenya. Uh, look at NRT; they are really doing a good job up in up in the north and the coastal region. Ewaso Lions, all those organizations up in the north, uh, they have really found a way to, you know, work with um, local communities to just involve them directly and use them, you know, use them to uh, to be, you know, the voice, to be the people who are on the ground, you know, doing patrols. And I think taking that approach and uh, uh, fine-tuning it a bit, Will 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 work for now, but I think there's uh, a lot of space for improvement also in that. And the way area. I see it is, there has been this, there has been this, you know, uh, a school of thought that only the government can solve this problem. And I'm one of those people who believe uh, wildlife conservation is so huge that the government cannot cannot chew on this by itself. It's very important that some of these activities are passed on and we encourage as more people, as many people to get engaged in civil society organizations, either through volunteership or in any way or the other to, you know, give their time, resources, you know, to, to change how animals are protected in the country. Kenya Wildlife Service cannot do it yeah. by themselves. There's no amount of money we can give them that can make them protect those animals by themselves. It's impossible. So we need people working with communities. We need communities working within themselves. We need the local charmer when they meet to discuss about how they will save to do something that they have a plan. They, I mean, sure. we bring it to such a level that it is being used in, in whole household discourse as a way that people can either be inspired or benefit or value something. At least we must hit the mark on those three. It's about owning it, you know, and being intentional about it. And Jim, uh, what are your final words uh, to encourage travelers, you know, to travel more responsibly and uh, sustainably? 
and consciously <laughs> when borders reopen? No, um, it, it's simple. There's going to be a scramble as to where should you go. And I know every single time a traveler is making the decision of which country to go to, they are looking at the country where you can easily, you know, hit the mark on all your travel destinations, all your bucket list items at the same spot. And when you look at Africa, with the exception of South Africa, I think Kenya is the only place, it's the only country I know you will at least hit on three massive destinations or three, at least three bucket list items. It's a place where you should at least visit in your lifetime. So if you're trying to find out a place where you can visit, where over the last two years has remained untouched and largely unseen, I think uh, Kenya is one of those places. And you will be finding Kenya at a time where every four months we have a large migration, whether it's the it's the wildebeest in the Masai Mara or, you know, it's the flamingos at uh, Lake Naivasha or it is the whales, you know, across Watamu and Lamu. You know, it's it has everything you can get, I guess. So, you know... It's finding places, sure. truly connecting people, connecting with nature. It's not like you won't find that anywhere else, but I do feel in Kenya you will be able to see it while at the same time enjoying the normal trappings of modernity and civilization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's truly magical. And Jim, I cannot you know, leave this conversation without touching a bit on politics and uh, how our politics affects, you know, uh, uh, sorry, not international travel, but uh, the travel space in general. You know, we, we, are, we are in 2021. The election is um, a year or, I don't know, some months from now. Um, but we are seeing uh, campaigns here and there, you know, people, you know, um, big crowds, you know, the temperatures are starting to get high and high, you know, uh, tempers, you know. Are, are, are you worried about the political uh, scene in Kenya after every five years? Uh, is it something that uh, that directly affects, you know, tourism? Well, in a well you know, the way I see, I usually see Kenyan politics, I see it like the like the typical uh, domestic fight. This is where we as the children, <laughs> every five years has to watch our parents bicker. And then for some reason, have to create this horrible scenario that makes our neighbors anxious and scared. So um, it's been like that. I think every single election that has ever happened, you know, we have created a precedent yeah. that doesn't create, doesn't give one that much hope that, they, they, I'm not saying think bad things will happen. I'm just saying there will be tension. And it's usually not good tension. It's not good to, you know, to, uh, to tourism. It's not good to business. And then even more uh, shocking is it doesn't create the necessary stability that allows for tourists to come into this country and enjoy themselves without the fear of, hey, I may lose something, or hey, things may go sour, or hey, I may, not, I may be locked out from this country. And then politics in this country has truly interested me. I mean, uh, the one thing I know is if you're not interested in politics, politics will be seriously interested in you either way. So you may say you're not interested, but as a taxpayer, they are seriously interested in you. So 
I mean, you've mm. seen the decisions from quarantining, the decisions from banning travel. Most of those decisions are not following scientific merit whatsoever. I mean, you can see every single decision and without even thinking about the big decisions that are mind-boggling, let's think about the small ones. You know, when you go to your typical supermarket, the guy who used to check your bag now checks your temperature, if he will, because they've all gone tired of doing it. You get what I mean? I mean, our yeah. our yeah. law enforcement is theater when it comes to COVID. It's to not give people, it's to just give with a sense of security that something is being done, but not the amount of work needed to give you the assurance that actually something is being done. You get it's like when they check for the yeah. bomb in your car. You're just wasting 30 seconds of my time. I wish someone could do a study as to how many hours <laughs> have Kenyans lost being done nonsensical checks that should not be done because someone <laughs> somewhere seated in an office thought we needed to do something. So yeah. it's for me, our politicians need to really, really, really think about science. And I think science-driven decision-making will be the thing that is going to save everything. I mean, look at conservation. We forget the blacks. You know, 11 rhinos yeah. were killed in 2019. Don't you remember? That's the highest number. It, I, I mean, seriously, it was a government decision. We, we truly need to get to a situation where government truly follows proper decision-making. That is scientific. If I could, if only I could be president, if only, um, but I won't be, so, yeah, yeah. Wow, 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 wow. What a brilliant, brilliant conversation we've had, Jim. And I can't thank you enough, you know, for making time to share your experience, your knowledge, and your, your, your vision, you know, and what you do. And, uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for making time to join us on the podcast. Um, Asante, You're welcome, Asante, Asante. Uh, Thank you for having me. Bye. Goodbye.